Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. I'm here today with Cristobal Perdomo from Jaguar Ventures. Cristobal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So let us uh, get to know you. Uh, tell us about yourself as well as about Jaguar Ventures. What do you like to invest in? What size fund are we working with? And, and so on and so forth. Great. Uh, so I'm based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. We have a fund that has two offices, one in Argentina and one in Mexico. I'm originally Mexican, but I've been in Argentina for the last 11 years. And we focus in our investments uh, across Latin America except Brazil. Uh, the reason why we don't do Brazil is because we think Brazil is a very well-covered market. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have an ad, any added value there, we, well, there might be some adverse selection in what we get. So we focus on Brazil for companies that want to go outside Brazil to the rest of the region, but not for mm-hmm. them to focus on Brazil specifically. Okay. Uh, we have two funds. We, have, uh, we did a first fund of $10 million, and we're now investing out of our second fund, which is a $60 million fund, uh, with the same investment thesis, early stage investments. Usually, 15 or 15? Uh, uh, no, the first fund was 10. The second fund is 60. 60? Yeah. And okay. we invest in early stage. So typically tickets between half a million and a million and a half dollars. Okay. Uh, across all sectors. But we mostly have experience on fintech, marketplaces, SaaS, and e-commerce. Okay. And uh, the $60 million fund is in, uh, to invest uniformly across all of Latin America except Brazil? Or is there um, bias towards Argentina, Mexico? You said those are two places where you have strong presence. Uh, is the bulk of the investments in those two uh, places? Well, uh, we don't have a prearranged uh, uh, distribution of where we're going to invest. So the first fund, for example, was half Mexico, half Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, this new fund, we've made two investments, one in Colombia and one in Brazil. So neither one was Mexico or Argentina. Mm-hmm. So I think in the end, it's probably going to be probably around 70% Mexico and Argentina and the rest opportunistically. Okay, got it, got it. And uh, can you define early stage? Uh, you write half a million to $1.5 million checks. Now, what do you want to see in the companies that come to you by way of validation? You know, we see all kinds of definitions, all kinds of stage readiness and validation readiness uh, in the investors we talk to. So what is your particular preference by way of validation? Uh, I think that's a great question because usually people are just thinking about putting in a label on the, on the rounds participate, so there's seed or series A. Uh, we think it's much more broader than that. And yeah. I think your approach is the correct one, right? Thinking about how, how ready the, the company is. Uh, in, our, in our minds, we look for companies that have found product market fit, that have found a uh, client base for, for that product. So we look at, at a couple of things. We look at, that, at them getting recurring revenues from the same product or service for at least six months with a growing mm-hmm. uh, revenue stream. We'll look for them to be fully devoted to the, to the venture. So we need to, at least two, two founders. So far, we've never invested in a solo founder. That might happen, but not, not, not yet. Mm-hmm. And when we look at two founders, is because we think you need both a technical founder and you need a business founder. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, our experience is that when we did invest in someone that didn't have both profiles, uh, the results weren't what we expected. So that, that's, mm-hmm. that's another thing for us. Uh, we also think 
that the company has to have already revenues in at least two geographies. Uh, otherwise, we think that investing in someone trying to do a new geography when they've only been in their home base might be too risky. So we also don't do that. And uh, we also look for KPIs of at least one year. Uh, we think one of the great things about doing digital ventures is that you get a lot of information and that gives you an advantage in making decisions with, with information insight. Right? Unlike doing it maybe in the real world where you might not have as much data to, to work with. So we really like entrepreneurs who are very focused on, on using that data to make better decisions. So mm -hmm. for us, knowing that these entrepreneurs are looking at KPIs from day one and making decisions based on what they're seeing, uh, how the market responds is super important. Okay. So um, let's actually do some examples of what kinds of things have you invested in. It doesn't matter from the first fund or the second fund, but just what I want to understand is how you think about these investments. When did they come to you? What did they have when they came to you? And what did you see in these particular ventures to really convince you and compel you to write the check? Okay. Uh, we usually like to speak with companies outside of their funding rounds. Uh, usually when someone comes to us and they're doing a funding round, we think it might be too late for us because we, we think that when you do a funding round, usually entrepreneurs are very good at dressing up the company, right? And showing you the right metrics, the right graphics, everything looks beautiful, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But if you get to know a company before the funding, the funding round or, or not in the funding cycle, you should get a, a better rough picture of what, the, of what the company is like and what the founders do. Uh, one company that's our, our flagship investment from fund one is Confio, which is a, a lending company in Mexico that does SME working capital loans. Mm -hmm. uh, that company, we saw a little after they've been accelerated by 500 startups. And we actually met them while they were being accelerated. And that's one company where we interacted a lot with the founder. We liked his approach, we liked his background, we liked the market he was addressing. We just thought that the product might not be uh, suitable for what he was trying to do because of the time he was trying to do consumer finance loans. And we thought that was a little bit too risky because of the ticket size, the margins, uh, the unit economics weren't great. So we, 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 we helped him uh, uh, think a little bit about it and he was the one that came up with the idea to working capital loans. And mm -hmm. when we saw that, we saw that it was a perfect fit, that there was a, an immense market for that. There was no competition at the time. Uh, he had the right uh, profile for doing it. He was an ex-banker with a, with a mathematics degree from MIT. So mm -hmm. uh, we just loved it. And we invested in that company in seed, Series A, Series B, Series C. Uh, we tried to follow up on our companies with follow-on investments with at least two rounds uh, and the best ones. So, so we were really very, very much hand-in-hand in hand with the entrepreneurs for a long ride. Okay. All right, let's do another one. So another company we invested in is in Argentina. Uh, it has operations in Argentina, Mexico, Colombia, and Chile. And it started out being a marketplace for cleaning services for the home, similar to a home mm -hmm. joint in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem that most of those companies run into is that uh, the marketplace itself doesn't scale as quickly as you would like. Uh, there's usually a lot of problems with how you get to cleaning people, how you get people to pay for the service, if there's any legal liabilities around the service, things like that. And we saw that same thing happening to us. And what we liked a lot about the founder was their, their saltiness. It's a, it's, a, it's a female founder, which we, we are particularly biased towards. 45% of our companies have at least one female founder. Uh, and what she did is she, looked, she saw that the marketplace uh, wasn't having as much monetization as she would like. 
And but she saw that she also had a, a unique asset in the amount of cleaners in, in the database, right? So she had around two hundred thousand cleaners in the database, and around eighty-five thousand people paying for those services. So she looked at a way of monetizing that, and what she found that was that she had a unique opportunity to monetize and help bring financial inclusion to this segment of the population, which is mm-hmm. incredibly underserved. Even as some banks, as emerging markets are, the bottom of the pyramid is incredibly more on their back, right? Uh, so we started uh, providing very, very basic financial services at the beginning uh, in, a, in alliance with a, with a financial service company, a bank, mm-hmm. where we gave them a debit account, a debit card, uh, very small loans. But even at that stage, what we found, that, uh, unfortunately, yes, uh, not, not, not the best way possible, is how different is the client that a bank looks for and the, bank that, and the client that we were able to provide. Right? Mm-hmm. A bank, usually their, their, their services are, are targeted to making large loans. Otherwise, it doesn't make any economic sense for them. Mm-hmm. So they were wanting to make loans of $5,000, $10,000, which for a person that's making perhaps $200 a month, it's almost impossible to pay, right? So we need to do smaller tickets. They couldn't figure out the economics for that. So we ended up bringing that in-house. So now the only thing we do with the banks is create the bank account because we need license for that. For everything else, all the other financial services are provided for by ourselves. So we capture much more of the, of the economic margins for that. And that's become a, the engine of growth for the company. So it, it sort of pivoted to being a fintech, uh, but still the, the, the marketplace is a very, a very important part because that creates databases. For the clients and the, also for the for the people hiring these services, they can pay their 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 employee through the through the platform, paying social benefits they need to pay anything that's regulatory based, they can do through the platform. Okay. How about a B two B example? B two B SaaS, perhaps. B two B. B two B. have a company you're familiar with, uh, Redis Mercado Libre, right? Yeah. So, well, Mercado Libre was my client actually a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I remembered. Uh, so we've come invested with Mercado Libre in this company. Uh, it's called Producteca. It's based out of Argentina as well, and they have operations, or they have clients in Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Peru, uh, Colombia. And what they do is they integrate uh, typical offline vendors. For example, a huge segment for them is auto parts, where they integrate them to sell into marketplaces, primarily Mercado Libre, but they also work with Amazon, they work with Walmart, they work with uh, Falabella in North America and other marketplaces. And what they, they allow for this for these vendors is usually these vendors have a, a huge headache in, in integrating with these marketplaces, right? Uh, uploading mm-hmm. their catalog, things like that. So once they upload it once to the platform, they can distribute that to uh, as many marketplaces as they also have available on the platform. So they give immediate, they all want to be as little reliant as possible on one single marketplace. They want to diversify their, their channel distribution. And also, when you do a new marketplace, your main problem is not having enough SKUs in your catalog. But we solve the problem for both sides of the equation, right? For the company that needs more more SKUs in their, in their catalog, the marketplace, and for the vendor that needs more distribution channels. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and that's a subscription fee business model or the transaction fee business model? That's a revenue sharing business model. So uh, the platform ends up taking about 1% of the of revenues. Transaction, okay. Mm-hmm. So um, are you seeing B2B SaaS subscription fee businesses in Latin America, or is that not so much a trend? The trend is more towards marketplaces, transaction-based marketplaces, and um, uh, fintech. No, I mean, I think fintech as global, uh, the same as in the rest of the world, is a hot topic, right? 
I think it's become too hot for, for my taste because valuations have gone up tremendously. And a lot of people try to just set FinTech to a business plan and just think that the valuation is going to go up because of that. Uh, so that might be probably that's, a, that's the largest sector so far of new, of new ventures you see. But I also see SaaS, uh, B2B. Uh, in fact, we have a, another company that does basically Spotify for business. Uh, it's, it creates curated playlists. So that way, the, the problem with Spotify, you, you, when you see their numbers, is that so much of every dollar of revenue goes to licensing, right? Because you're doing uh, a selection of music a la carte, so you can choose any, any song you want. When you do the opposite and you do play, create a playlist, the, the, the equation is almost the inverse. So instead of getting uh, paying out in licensing maybe 90 cents every dollar, uh, here you're paying about 10 cents of every dollar in, in licenses. Uh, so that's a super profitable model. Uh, that's one, one, one B2B subscription model we're, we're invested in. But we see others, right? We see like uh, uh, invoicing services, we see uh, uh, marketing intelligence services, things like that. Okay. What are the uh, key trends that you see in your deal flow? So you, uh, it sounds like you have deal flow from all over Latin America. What are the trends mm-hmm. that you're seeing? I mean, I think it varies country by country. Right? I think that the one trend across the globe is, is, is fintech, and probably 90% of those fintechs are usually lending, lending-based companies, right? Yeah, uh, that's a very big uh, trend right now. Yeah, and, and, and there's very little differentiation, right? Uh, so it ends up being a, a, a difficult play, especially when you have some entrenched players. Uh, I think one, one, one moment that we really hadn't thought about that we've fallen in love with a company we invested in is the direct-to-consumer, just because we, we probably didn't have the right approach of understanding how the model works, and we thought it was another e-commerce model, but it, I think it's completely different. It's a branding model. model where all of your, your, your strength is in creating a brand that's good enough for clients to come look for you, and we're, there's some aspirational uh, thing to it. Uh, and also because they usually go into industries where margins are super high, right? So there's some incumbents that are basically milking consumers, and yeah. people are fed up about that, and they want to find a better solution. And you also, uh, you also solve the... the, the the problem of deciding which is the best product, right? Uh, usually you can be overwhelmed when you look at, I don't know, typical thing is mattresses, right? You go to a, a mattress store and there's 35 different models, probably 20 are the same thing, they only change the name, uh, but you have no idea. Right? Uh, so things like Casper and that sort of, of, of direct-to-consumer models where you see that the, you're relying on the brand, making, giving you two or three options, and you know that those are really good, right? Uh, it might not be the best, but they're good enough for, for, for most of the people. So we have one, one investment like that in Mexico that is a, it's a Warby Parker clone company and their, their, their margins are just amazing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a company that's profitable at the unit margin, it's profitable at the store margin. Uh, they've been able to do the omnichannel thing. So that's, that's one thing we've, we really like. Unfortunately, I haven't seen as much of that in product Latin America as I would like. I've seen most of the models are in Mexico, so I haven't seen that elsewhere. Uh, in Peru, for example, there's a lot of uh, educational tech companies, which I was surprised. For some reason, they, they, they found that model to be appealing there. Uh, in, in Colombia, because of the rapid effect, I see a lot of companies are trying to do uh, delivery or on-demand things and scale super quickly. We invested in one of those, those type of companies, which is an on-demand cargo company. Uh, in Argentina, I'd say that it's, a, it's more broad-based. Uh, you see a lot of, mark, uh, of ad tech. You see 
I would say there's a, there's a country in Latin America where you see the most Bitcoin stuff still going around. I think that was very, very small elsewhere, but in, in Argentina it's huge. And also you see a lot of active uh, activity, right? Uh, in Chile, you see more B2B, uh, a lot of enterprise software, but I think mm-hmm. probably because you have a lot more uh, established companies that are willing to, to pay for those services. So it's, it's very different depending on, on the geography. Interesting, very interesting. What about Colombia? So Colombia is super interesting because for one thing, I'd, I'd say it's probably the large, the, 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 the medium to large size country in Latin America which has the less funding available. Right? Like there's absolutely zero VC uh, funds. So right. all the funding is done by family offices or foreign investors. And uh, you see family offices de- developing a certain investor, investor knowledge to, to, to do these deals. But you see a lot more foreign investors that you see the Rappi Mafia effect, right? So Rappi has been the flagship company of Colombia for the last two years. And you see how successful they've been in, in, in capturing funding from the likes of SoftBank a couple of days ago, VST, uh, Sequoia, uh, A16Z, all those large funds. So you see that a lot of the, of the hot startups in Colombia have some connection to Rappi. Either they've been seed invested by the founders of Rappi, they've been introduced by, by the Rappi founders to some of the to Y Combinator or some of the US investors, or they've at some point worked in Rappi and used that as a, as a validation for other investors. So I think, I think Colombia, I mean, the strength, I, I think the path is growing hub in Latin America. The only thing it's missing is capital, local capital to, to mm-hmm. tell these early, early stage ventures that unfortunately, if they don't have that Rappi connection, they're, they're dead on the water. What is your um, assessment of the numbers? Like how many startups are operating in these countries right now? Um, do you have any sense? Uh, I wouldn't know the actual number of, of countries. I, would, I can use some numbers for our fund. Right? So in our first fund, we invested in 10 companies, and we saw around uh, 1,150 companies for that. Okay. In a period of and a half years. Right? Uh, let's say that. And do you have a sense of what percentage of the total um, population of com- com- companies would that be? I think it's a fairly large size. Uh, the problem you have with places like Latin America where there's not a lot of capital is that you will find that almost every venture, every entrepreneur at some point will get to you. Right? If you if you tomorrow set up a new venture fund and say um, Mitra Ventures, right? You would probably mm-hmm. get ninety percent of the of the business uh, decks around. So, so that that, that extrapolates to you those twelve hundred companies in the first fund probably represent 95 percent of the total deal flow in Latin America. Uh, I for any stage, yeah, I, I would say so. Uh, okay. I, what you see is, is that the number of companies is growing tremendously, right? Mm-hmm. So probably of those twelve hundred, we probably saw about half of those in the last year. Uh, so it, it's really growing, growing exponentially. Uh, but we'll see that the problem is still funding, right? We're getting enough capital in, into the market. To give you an idea, uh, I was when they playing with the numbers, and when you look at how much uh, how much funding is spent by internet user, you have in the U.S. the figure is around two hundred and thirty dollars per internet user. The figure for China is around eighty dollars, and the figure for Latin America is less than two dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So. The, the change in magnitude is just amazing, right? I mean, Latin America for sure is smaller than the U.S., 
but I don't think that it's that it's uh, 14 times smaller than the U.S. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. All right, that gives me an idea about uh, what's happening in your uh, um, in your sweet spot. Now, what uh, what are some of the highlights of recent companies that have crossed, let's say, five million in revenues? Well, uh, I'd say it's hard to know the revenues, right, from the companies uh, unless you're actually looking at them to invest. It's more, I think, a matter of looking at the larger investor rounds. So you start seeing a lot of more, uh, let's say, serious, even seed investments that are over $10 million, which are super interesting, right? Uh, like How I many of those have happened? How many Series C investments happened uh, in the last, 12 months or 18 months of, in that scale? I would say it's, for all the Americans, it's a large number, but it's probably around 2025. 2025. Okay, that's number. what I was trying to get a ballpark of, uh, of those. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything else that uh, I should have asked you about to get a sense of what's happening in Latin America right now in your sphere of influence that I did not ask you? Well, I think one thing that's interesting about Latin America, and I think it's the same thing with most emerging startup hubs, is the where are the exits, right? Like uh, people are, are starting to invest more money, but they're still thinking about it. So how are we going to make it back, right? Uh, I think that's always been a question you get from investors. And one thing that for, I'd say, the last five years, there was a big uh, interrogation sign as to what was the answer. I think, fortunately, that's changing for the better. I see more and more large funds investing from outside the region into Latin America. And usually when they have to go into these investments, a lot of times there's not enough space for them to invest. So you see a lot of secondary deals that are now creating some liquidity in the market, which is great, right? Because a lot of those angel investors or, or even non-functional funds or more uh, that might be part of a private equity fund, the family office, they, they're more interested in liquidity than returning money to their LPs. So you see that, that that's creating some liquidity pathways, and that's really encouraging because now you see that it's a real investment and not just money on a on a paper, right? Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. so I think when things are moving, they've been moving in the right direction for a while, but I think what is even more important is that they're moving at a higher velocity than we we have right. thought a, a, a few years back, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that's very typical of uh, emerging markets. Uh, I was quite closely involved with the beginning of the and I still am, but I was very closely involved in the beginning of the Indian market's evolution since 2005. Mm-hmm. And, and that market has accelerated greatly, like greatly. I mean, the number of startups are, you know, definitely over 10,000 uh, in the market right now. There are a lot of uh, investment flowing into the, the local um, market for investments has also improved. The local number of micro VCs has improved. And I mean, in general, it is, it's much higher velocity market today. And, and I think Latin America is not as far along, but, you know, and I think in the next five years, it's going to move very, very well. Yeah, I think one thing that's super interesting that uh, I, I heard that some people say a few days ago is that they look at India and they look at Latin America, right? And when you look at India, I think last year, there was around $39 billion of PC investments in India. Right? When you look at the number of Latin America, it's $2 billion, right? So right. you still see the, same, the difference in magnitude that it's completely uh, uh, 
un- unrelated but to the size of the market. Uh, unexpected, you know, because uh, India had a very large IT services industry. So the the population mm-hmm. of people who are tech savvy and have grown up in the technology industry, have great technical skills in some domain or the other, is very high. So that's that's the bulk of where technology entrepreneurship comes from. Latin America didn't have that, so it's obviously no, cannot move as fast. Yes, and the other thing that I think is super important is that when you look at the large unicorns in India, there was some Indian investor related to those companies, right? And they made a lot of money. Yeah. So they have reinvested in those type of companies. When you yeah. look at the unicorns in Latin America, like the Mercado Libre, the Vespergar, all those guys, also those were funded by U.S. or, or foreign investors. There was almost no no one in Latin America making money out of that except for the founding teams. So when you look, when you speak with local investors, they still think about technology as something very important to them and something that happens to someone else. So it's hard yeah. to get them to believe that they can build an extra calorie because they didn't see any of that wealth creation. Well, the founders made a lot of money in Macalibre. Yeah, I mean, but the founders are a handful, right? But you don't see any yeah. local investors that invested in, in the early stages of, of those companies. Right. Right. No, that's that's a fair fair uh, point. Like, absolutely. But uh, but I think it, it you know it's that's partly true. But also I think there is a tremendous bridge between India and Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is very deeply um, connected to India. There's lots of Indians who yeah. have done very well in Silicon Valley, and they invest in India. They go back and forth all the time. And Latin America just doesn't have that kind of presence in the high, higher echelons of Silicon Valley. Definitely. So, that's a huge difference. You have the, the CEO of Google, the CEO of Microsoft, are India. That's right. right. That gives you enough, <laughs> Adobe, enough yeah. <laughs> and the venture business is full of them. So, it's, yeah, it's a very different uh, comparison. But, but, you know, I think the, the general momentum is, uh, is building up, and I think it's, it's just going to take a little bit longer, and it will come around. Well, it's a pleasure talking with you. I'm uh, very happy to hear more about what's happening in uh, Latin America. I've always had a deep interest in Latin America. The first time I went to Argentina was in 1998, and I spent an extensive amount of time in Argentina over over the years. So I've always been interested in Latin America. It's great to hear from you. No, thank you for the interest. We really like uh, being people from outside to take some interest in the region. Well, audience, thank you for listening as well. And uh, we will be back soon with another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. In the meantime, as usual, go to the website, go to free public roundtables and sign up. If you want to bring your project into this working session, I will be happy to work with you on you know, what, whatever challenges that you're facing and give you my insights into what might help you remove your roadblocks. Speak soon. Bye-bye.